Good morning. Happy Easter. How are you guys doing? Good? Wow, this is absolutely amazing. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Mark chapter 15. If you do not, uh, ushers are there, or the, the, the scriptures will also be on, on the screens. Today we, um, we conclude, we've been in the book of Mark for over a year now, and we conclude the book today, and it's concluded at the kind of the, the, the climax of the entire New Testament, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to read Mark chapter 15, and uh, I'm going to start, I'm going to start in verse... I'm going to start in verse 37, and then I'll pray. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and the younger brother of Joseph, and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to, to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether Jesus was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was indeed dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph uh, bought a linen shroud and taking him uh, down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go up and anoint him. And very early in the morning on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you in Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for what you've done and who you are. Thank you for the way that you've worked in this young church and the way that you're working in this city. I pray for your presence this morning, that your character and your love would be manifested here in this theater this morning. We pray that much of Jesus would be made, we would make much of you, Jesus, and much of your victory, that you would fill our hearts with faith, that we ask for faith. We ask, I ask for faith for those who do not have faith. I pray that you would take our hearts and that you would speak to them, that you would reveal yourself to us, especially those who have maybe been hurt by the church or were jaded by religion. 
We know, God, that we were not built for religion but for a relationship with the living God. And so we ask, God, that you would reveal that to us. I ask that you would anoint me. I need your help this morning, especially this morning. I'm just simply a herald. I'm here to tell everyone that you are risen indeed. Anoint me now. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as a church community, we have been looking at the story of Jesus now for some time. And we've been looking at the story of Jesus in the first recorded account of Jesus' life in the book of Mark. And what we've been saying every week is that Jesus writes about and reveals to us the real and the authentic Jesus. The way that Mark opens his story, the story of Jesus is like this in Mark 1.1. He says, in the beginning, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what happens is that this sentence will like hang over the entire book. This single sentence hangs over the entire book, asking both the characters in the book and the audience reading the book this question. How is this Jesus the Son of God? How is this Jesus the Son of God? And how is that good news to me? I mean, who is this Jesus and how is him being the Son of God, how is that good news? And Mark doesn't really waste any time with backstory, doesn't waste time with with uh, genealogies or anything like that. He plunges us right, he plunges his audience, you and me, right into the unfolding story. Richard B. Hayes, the professor of New Testament at Duke University, said that Mark's Jesus has no time for leisurely discourses about lilies of the field. This gospel plunges us into the midst of of a cosmic conflict, careening forward, and if we want to follow the story, we need to pick up the pace. And this is exactly how Mark's story begins, if you've ever read Mark's gospel. The way that Mark careens us forward into this cosmic conflict is by bursting Jesus on the scene with these words in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the very beginning of his book. Jesus breaks into the scene and he's proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now there might be some of us in here that might be unfamiliar with the term kingdom of God. It sounds a bit controlling maybe, a bit scary. What do you mean the kingdom of God is at hand? What does the kingdom of God mean? Well the kingdom of God means it was an expression that embodied the hopes of the Jewish people. That God would one day remove all evil from the world and inaugurate a new and unprecedented age of blessing and prosperity and joy. That's what the kingdom of God embodied. One of the ways this hope was expressed was through a prophecy given by one of their own prophets, Isaiah. And Isaiah said in chapter 2 of his uh, prophecy, God will judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And the people shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. See, that is what the kingdom of God embodied. This was a big deal to the Jewish people. It meant something so deep about the nature and the character of God that evoked emotions when they heard the words, the kingdom of God. It was tied to their hopes. It was tied to their fears. It was tied to their present. And it was tied to their future. But this wasn't, and this isn't just a Jewish hope. This is, we'd be naive to think it's just a Jewish hope. This is a human hope. We want peace There's something in us that all of us, we want peace. It's the cry of our souls. In 1945, on this very stage, 
world leaders assembled to sign the first United Nations Charter. And you might have your opinions or thoughts about the United Nations, but one thing is true. We all want peace. We all want to, as the charter says, live together in peace with one another as good neighbors. Most of us in this room can agree upon that. But it's, it's not just world peace that we want. We're, we're, we're a bit ambitious. We don't just want world peace. We want inner peace. We want physical peace like health. We want environmental peace. We want people to get along. We want animals to get along. We buy a cat and a dog and a bird and a fish and put them in a studio apartment, and we want them to get along. <laughs> we're ambitious. We want our kids to get along with other kids. We want our dogs to get along with other dogs. The Hebrew word for this is shalom. It's peace. Peace with God, peace with others, peace with ourselves, peace with our environment. It's spatial peace, it's spiritual peace combined. The shalom of God. And this is what the kingdom of God embodied. This is what the kingdom of God meant. And so when Jesus burst on the scene in Mark chapter 1, saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, the informed reader expects Jesus to bring peace. Well, okay, if you are the one bringing about the kingdom of God, then you should be bringing peace to where there is chaos. You should put right where there has been wrong. You should put an end to evil. And this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus' ministry begins like any typical rabbi's career would begin, by teaching, by explaining the scriptures. But during one of his first synagogue teaching appearances, a man stands up right in the, right in the middle of his teaching. And this man was possessed by a demon. And he stands up and he begins to yell at Jesus and say, what do you think you're doing here, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you really are, the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And what Jesus does is he rebukes the evil spirit, tells the demon to leave the man alone. The man falls on the ground, convulses, the demon leaves, the man stands up, folds his hand and goes, carry on. And everyone around Jesus is flipping out. They begin to say, what is this rabbi doing? This is a new teaching, they said, but they added another word. They said, this is a new teaching with authority, with exousia, with weight to your words. Like you say something and it happens. What kind of teaching is this and what kind of teacher is this? And then Jesus does this again with a man who has over a legion of demon, demons, which is a, a way of saying thousands of demons, who was sentenced to live outside, in a, outside of town in a cave, naked, alone, cold, and tormented. And Jesus goes after him. He's on a mission to set free people who have been under and in bondage. He saves this man. He frees him from the power of the demonic and he restores his mind. And he gives him some clothes. Jesus does with sickness as well. He, he does this with disabilities like blindness and paralysis. Even one time he brings this little girl back to life. Jesus even does this with the weather. When storms threaten to destroy, Jesus calms the storms. When waves seem too big, Jesus walks on the waves. I mean, what's going on here? When you're reading through Mark, you're going, what, who is this man? And why isn't he a member of the Avengers? What is he doing? So in Mark's book, as you're reading Mark's book, you're thinking, and the way that Mark wraps his story and the story world that Mark presents to us is in Mark, demons dominate people. And illnesses make people less than whole. And nature threatens to destroy. And humans oppress other humans. And Jesus breaks in and he challenges every other claim to power. Everything that comes against the loving rule of God. Everything that keeps people in bondage. Everything that keeps people from created order. 
from shalom. Jesus breaks in and he brings freedom. British theologian Leslie Newbegin said, Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil, not to submit to them. This whole ministry is portrayed in the gospel as a mighty onslaught on the works of the devil, whether these took the form of sickness and demon possession among the people or of hypocrisy, cruelty, and hard-heartedness among rulers. And his whole ministry is interpreted as the breaking in of the reign of God into the life of the world to release those whom Satan has bound. Jesus comes in in the book of Mark and he has this spiritual authority, this exousia that no one has ever seen before. And people begin to think, now this is someone we can get behind. This is someone that we can follow. And you know what? Many people do. Many people follow him. They follow Jesus as he feeds them in the desert. He follows Jesus as he heals their children, as he frees their friends from evil, as he teaches them to love one another and to trust in God. But then something happens. Jesus begins to tell his followers that he's going to die. He tells them, I'm going to die. Actually, he's going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, spit upon, crucified, and then die. See, but this isn't paranoia. By this time, Jesus had many enemies for sure, but, but this, like any revolutionary does, but Jesus is not fearing for his life as a movement leader might who senses his enemies want to assassinate him. The difference here is that Jesus begins to predict that he will die. He says, I'm going to die, and he actually begins to predict that he's going to die voluntarily. He even says this, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Give. But then he adds this, but after three days, I will rise. Okay, who says that? He says, after three days, they will mock me and spit on me and beat me and torture me and crucify me, but after three days, I will rise. Nobody, nobody believed him. Nobody even really took him serious. In Mark chapter 10, he says, we're going to Jerusalem, and I will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn me to death and deliver me over to the Gentiles, and they will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me, and after three days, I will rise. Like, wait, what? You're going to what? You will rise? I mean, they couldn't even get their mind around him dying, let alone him rising from the dead. I mean, here's a man who is like, unlike anyone in history, anyone that history has ever really encountered, he has the power to do anything. Heal the sick, calm the seas, dispel evil, put back together anything that has been broken. But he was going around telling everyone that he was going to die for them and then rise. This was not a smart PR move. Why would someone like this die? Why would someone with so much power, who you would think could prevent his own death, I mean, if he was that powerful, if he can do all of these great things, if he can even rise a little girl from the dead, couldn't he even just pre prevent his own death? His disciples thought he could prevent his own death. Actually, one of his disciples rebuked him for saying that you were going to die. He said, don't talk that way. You will not die. I have your back, man. I'm strong. I, can't, I won't let you die. They begin to rebuke Jesus. But then it happened. Just as Jesus said it would. He was betrayed by Judas, arrested by Jewish authorities, delivered over to Roman authorities. He was beaten, 
and tortured, crucified, killed, and then buried. And what did his followers do? They waited three days by the tomb for him to rise just as he said. No, they didn't. They ran. Every single one of them ran for their lives. Every one of them. You know why they ran? You know why they hid? You know why they weren't by the tomb on three days later just waiting, hoping, expecting? See, in the decades surrounding Jesus' life, there, are, there were many messianic movements in Israel. And when a leader died, in most cases when a leader died, or normally he was killed by execution, the whole movement collapsed. So when the leader died, the movement stopped. See, the cross was the end of the Jesus movement. Everyone left. No one expected a resurrection. No one did. And from the disciples' perspective, the cross of Jesus looked like the religious establishment won. The cross looked like Rome won, like evil had actually won. Remember, the cross was reserved for criminals. For the follower of Jesus, his death meant that their hope of redemption and the kingdom of God coming near was dead. I mean, a couple of his disciples actually had their bags packed, ready to move into the palace and sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand when he was going to be installed as Israel's king. Peter had his sword ready. But when Jesus gave himself up without a fight, turned himself in, and when he died, hope died with him. The last thing that the disciples ever imagined this all-powerful Jesus would do would be actually to die in the hands of the pagan occupying forces. Because it's Messiah's job to liberate people from such oppression that killed Jesus. But it didn't happen for them. The cross looked like a total defeat, like evil had won again. It won again. Notice in Mark's narrative and every other narrative, no one said, oh, yeah, wait, wait, everybody stop. Stop crying at the foot of the cross. He'll be back in three days, everybody. It's cool. Calm down. Let the Romans do what they're going to do. Just watch. No one said that. Nor did anyone say, well, you know what? God bless him. He had a good run at it. At least he's in heaven now with God. He's in a better place. No one said that either. See, they had hoped that Jesus would bring in the kingdom of God. They were taught to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The cross, Rome's cross, which Jesus hung upon, meant that the kingdom of God hadn't come. Rome was still very much in charge. It meant Caesar is Lord. The cross meant that the disciples bet on the wrong team. Rome won and the game is over. That is the context of Easter morning. That's why the women were so hysterical going to anoint Jesus' body that they didn't even think, who's going to roll away the stone? They didn't think that. They thought that on the way because they, they were so filled with discouragement. They were so filled with our Savior, our Messiah, our leader has died. But then we read in Mark 16 too, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Isn't Mark so clever? I mean, did you catch that? When the sun had risen? See, the last prophecy of the Old Testament about the Messiah was this, Malachi 4, 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And Mark says, the sun has risen. But Mark isn't writing a legend here. He's not making up a story. He's not writing fiction. Mark sort of breaks from his normal 
writing style here to give eyewitness accounts. If you've read the book of Mark, it's different. He doesn't usually use people's names. Mark starts naming people over and over again. He says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the Jewish council, took courage, went to Pilate, and asked to bury Jesus before the sundown on the Sabbath. But Pilate, Mark says, is surprised to hear that Jesus died. Wait, people normally hang on the cross for days and not die. He's already dead? So Pilate asks the Roman centurion, who would have been an expert in this matter, if Jesus was really dead. And the centurion said, yes, he is really dead. And Pilate declares Jesus dead. Multiple experts, eyewitness, proved that Jesus was dead, and Mark put all of that in here. Then he names those who go to the tomb three different times. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. As if to say when Mark was writing this, they are eyewitnesses. If you don't believe me, go ask them. This isn't legend. This is not fairy tale. They didn't make this up. Historian, the historian N.T. Wright writes in his book, Who Was Jesus? He says, as a historian, it will not do to say that Jesus' disciples were so stunned and shocked by his death, so unable to come to terms with it, that they projected their shattered hopes onto the screen of fantasy and invented the idea of Jesus' resurrection as a way of coping with a cruelly broken dream. I mean, it has the initial apparent psychological plausibility, but it won't work as serious first century history. A Jewish revolutionary whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest himself had two options give up the revolution, or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. And he was. And this is the way that Mark writes it. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, hint, angel, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Everyone's scared of angels in the Bible. And angels are trained to say, do not be afraid, or do not be alarmed. <laughs> First thing you learn in angel school. And so the angel said to him, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Yes, but he has risen. He is not here. The resurrection of Jesus is true. He is risen from the grave. They did not make this story up. You didn't make stories like this up. If you're thinking, well, we know better than to believe in a resurrection now, they did too. You can't be arrogant. They, they did too. They didn't believe in one either. That's why they didn't see it coming. That's why Jesus had to eat a fish in front of them to prove that he wasn't a ghost. That's why he told Thomas, come in here and put your, your finger into my wounds. Look at my side where that was pierced. All that they would believe. So what does this mean then? Okay, so Jesus is risen from the dead. What does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus is alive? It means that the kingdom of God has come in. It means that on the cross, Jesus was able to absorb all the violence and all the suffering and all the wrong and all the wrath of God against sin, your sin and my sin, and fully satisfy it. The cross was not a messy accident, but it was the ransom paid for humanity's freedom. The resurrection shows us that not only did Jesus die, but that he finished dying. Jesus finished dying. It means that Jesus laid death in its grave. It means that the, in the death of, it was the death of death in the death of Christ. 
And when God raised his son from the dead, he was proclaiming to the whole world that Jesus has done everything. He has fulfilled every demand. He is risen to the glory of God and for our salvation. It means Jesus has won, that Jesus has the victory, that death doesn't have the last word, sin doesn't have the last word, cancer doesn't have the last word, AIDS doesn't have the last word, injustice doesn't have the last word, violence doesn't have the last word, and Rome didn't have the last word. The cross meant Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' ministry on earth becomes a foretaste of God putting everything back together again, reconciling the whole world to himself to bring in true peace, to bring in shalom. The resurrection means that the living God has made a bridgehead into this present world with his healing and all-conquering love, and that in the name of this strong love, all evils and all injustices and all the pains of the present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won the day. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' words have life. They have real life in them. They're not just memories. Jesus' words aren't just pithy statements. They're not just pipe dreams. Jesus' words are alive because Jesus is alive. That means words like this. Come all to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, I, you, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus isn't dead. He's an available Savior. We can go to him and find rest for our souls right now because he's alive. Words like this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever, claims, whoever comes uh, to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, I believe that all of us in here have a hunger for the spiritual. We have a real hunger for God, and this hunger brings a leanness to our souls when we try to feed it with things that don't satisfy it. But because Jesus is alive, he is our living bread of life. He is our living water. And then Jesus said in John, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So let me ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead to bring about our justification, to bring about our salvation, to, to be that present help in time of need, to be our present redeemer, our real savior? If so, then what do you do? One of my favorite illustrations about placing your hope in Jesus um, came from when I first began to preach and teach the Bible some 10 years ago. I heard this illustration and used it, and it's still a favorite, and I can't think of a better one, so I'll use it. In June of 1859, there was a tightrope walker, French tightrope walker named Blondin, and he stretched a tightrope across the Niagara Falls, and he walked across it. And there were tons of people that gathered. He was an amazing acrobat. Some 10,000 people went and watched him do this. 
And his manager and him thought after that event, well, this was, this was fun. Let's do this again. So they go, you know what? We'll do this again next week, but you know what? We'll, we'll decide. We'll, we'll do a trick. We'll do a trick next week. So they told everyone, hey, come back next week, and I will do a trick. So the crowd got bigger. Next, next uh, week he came back and he actually did a trick, a stunt on the tightrope. Then he promised a bigger stunt and then a bigger stunt. He did stunts like riding bikes across the Niagara Falls, standing on his head, doing flips. One time he took a stove out there and made an omelet and then ate it and then came back. <laughs> and everyone, the crowds kept growing and growing. And week after week, he would do these stunts and the crowds were going crazy. And Blondin and his manager, Harry, tried to think of a great grand finale. What do we do to cap off the summer? Let's do the best stunt possible. So they thought, you know what? I'll carry a man on my back across the Niagara Falls. So they advertised in the papers. $1,000 for anyone who's willing to go on his back, on Blondin's back, across the Niagara Falls. So all these people, all these people signed up. And so Blondin picked him up, put him on, their, on his back, and he, he kind of like held him there for a while. Okay, you're going to work. And so he had all these people lined up to do this. So the day comes. Over 100,000 people gather by the Niagara Falls to watch Blondin take someone across on his back. So what he did at first is he went over the Niagara Falls with a 200 pound sack on his back, just to prove that he can do it. So he takes the sack on his back, and he goes there, does tricks, and he goes back and forth and back and forth. And then he goes up to every single one of the volunteers in line, and he says, do you believe I can carry you across? And every single one of them said, I believe. I believe that you can do it. Then he went down the line and says, will you let me carry you across? And every single one of them said, no way. (laughs) There's no way in the world I'm getting on your back. And so he yelled at the crowd, do you believe that I can take a man across? And everybody said, we believe. And he goes, who wants to volunteer? And nobody volunteered. See, many of you in here have heard the Easter story. You, may, you might have heard it a dozen times. And you may even believe it. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He rose from the dead. I've heard that before. My question this morning is, do you trust? Have you placed your life into Jesus' hands? Have you placed your life into his life? Because he is alive. Yes, you believe but have you placed your life completely in Jesus, in his hands, for your life? That's what it means to believe. When Jesus says at the very beginning, repent and believe, that word carries this connotation of trust, placing your life into his life. As Jesus said at the beginning of Mark, repent and believe in this gospel. What is this gospel? That he went to the cross for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Our sins are taken away and we have access now because of the sacrifice of Jesus to the presence of God. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want to invite you this morning. It's Easter Sunday. I would not be a good preacher if I did not invite you to place your hope and your trust in Jesus, to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So as I pray right now, I want to pray with you. If you've never placed your hope fully on Jesus or if it's been marginal, if it's been, yeah, I believe, but you've never placed your hope fully in him for your life. You're the person sitting on the sidelines going, yeah, I believe, I believe. But it's now your time to put your life, absorb your life into his life. If you do that, let's pray.
God, I thank you for the power of the gospel. It's not preaching, nor singing, nor church service that saves people. Jesus, you save people. I want to pray that we would put our trust in you, God. Maybe for the first time, maybe coming back and trusting you, that we want to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, that you are risen and that hope would fill our hearts. We thank you that death and sin and corruption and violence and injustice does not have the final word, that Jesus, you are risen and you are risen indeed and you've, you've risen again to, to show that you've justified us that you've redeemed us, that you saved us. So I pray that hope would fill our hearts. Pray right now, God, that anyone here has never put their hope in you, they would do that now. They would open up their heart to you, their lives to you, and they would believe that you died for their sin, that you died to set them free, that you died to bring us into the presence of God. Lord, manifest the kingdom of God here right now as we worship. Bring a little piece of that kingdom of God here. Restore people. Set people free. In Jesus' name, amen.